You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this weekly catechesis where we learn our faith. And so Bishop Shane today will teach us about Peter, the Vicar of Christ, in our weekly catechism lesson. And we'll share with you uh, the audio portion of one of Bishop Shane's television shows from the 1950s. And this program will be entitled, Meet a Perfect Stranger, Yourself. Now you have to think about that. Meet a perfect stranger yourself. And I'll let Bishop Sheen explain that a little bit later. So let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom. Pray for us. So now, please enjoy these two reflections. Friends, during the past week we received two interesting letters that contain postscripts, both from children. This one comes from a little girl who signs herself MJM. I will read you the letter and then the postscript. The letter reads, Dear Bishop Sheen, I am sending you Three dollars is a little offering out of love of God. Yours, M.J.M., in first parenthesis, 12 years old. Second parenthesis, girl. (laughs) Postscript, I sure did enjoy your telecast on courtship. And another word came to us, too, from Philadelphia. It seems that during the past week, a little girl there by the name of Maria was saying her evening prayers. And she ended them with the words, God bless the whole world, even Bishop Sheen. (laughs) 
Well, the title of this telecast is Meet a Perfect Stranger. Yourself. There was, there were some words that were inscribed once on the temple of Delphi. And these words were, Know thyself. They were rather important because one day Socrates, the wise man of Greece, was asked, Why is it that Alcibiades, who has traveled so much throughout the world, is never happy? And Socrates said, Because he always brings himself with him. The Greek said it was very important for everyone, man, to know himself. And this inscription, I say, was put in letters of gold over the temple of Delphi. And it was said after a while that it was given actually by the god Apollo. Later on, Cicero said, no man could possibly have thought of such supreme wisdom. Therefore, it had to come from a god. Well, within the last 50 or 75 years, our modern world has developed a new branch of psychology in which it is believed that now we have plunged further down into the abyss of the self. And unexplored chasms that never before were touched in human personality have now been in some way uh, touched upon by the analyst's finger or mind. Now there's no doubt about it. This science of psychiatry has done a great deal of good. It is a science that has a place. And it is competing, indeed, for this other kind of wisdom, know thyself. But what we want to bring out tonight is that we're not talking about psychiatry. We're not saying that it is not valid. We are saying, however, that for normal people, normal people, this is the better wisdom. You are normal, aren't you? <laughs> if you're not, you can shut this program off. So tonight's for normal people, not for abnormal people. This really gets more down into the depths than this. Because the self actually is not touched here. The self is regarded as a kind of an optique on a dress. There's a world of difference between the two. Now we'll describe some of the differences. First of all, In our new psychology, there is a treatment principally of the unconscious. Over here, in this kind of wisdom, one seeks to explore conscience, which is very different. Here one is concerned about mental states. Here one is concerned about motives, about choices, about decisions, character. One can be very proud of mental states. For example, a man can say, I'm a free thinker. I'm absolutely free from all thought and boast of it. And very often, too, when mental states are brought up, the patient will say, uh, Doc, ever hear a case like mine? <laughs> but here, with conscience, there isn't that boastfulness. Generally, there's a bit of shame. Like a preacher that I heard of once who was 
haranguing his congregation, and he said, It's wrong to steal horses. Everyone shouted, Amen, Amen. Wrong to steal pigs. Amen, Amen. Wrong to steal cows. Amen, Amen. Wrong to steal chickens. And someone shouted back, Now he's meddling. That's what conscience does. <laughs> and the second difference between the two is here you are not responsible for your condition. But here you are responsible. Here you are not responsible for your condition because, well, if you, you're doing bad things and so forth, it may be due to your grandfather, it may be due to your grandmother. Or, if you're a juvenile delinquent, maybe you were scolded once. <laughs> One boy went completely bad because his father scolded him. He said, you idiot, put down that gun and don't shoot your mother. <laughs> the child can do anything. The child is never to blame because he's not responsible. He does not want to go to school, he plays hooky, refuses to study, misconducts himself in class. Is he responsible? No, of course not. What's wrong? He was spanked once. And from that day on, he's been at the tail end of his class. But over here, there's a sense of responsibility. One recognizes... And after all, we are primarily wills. We make decisions. We are responsible for our actions. Our will is really the only thing that in the world that is our own. Power and talent, beauty, wealth, all these things God can take away from us. But the will that remains our own, always, even for eternity. And therefore, that's the thing that we have to analyze. That's the thing we have to know. Here, you see, we're only spectators, as if we were looking at someone else because we're not responsible. Here, we're creators, captains of our own fate and destiny. And then finally, here, there is no need of amendment. No need of doing better. Why? Because, well, you're not responsible. Of course, someone here may go so far as to say, uh, I'm an old sinner. Why is it the sinners are always old? <laughs> I suppose that's partly mean that they're beyond all redemption. It may also indicate, too, when they say they're a sinner, that see how sensitive my conscience is. But the point is, they've only made a mistake. They may be stupid, but they've never done anything wrong. But over here, some amendment is necessary. And if, if we have stolen, for example, we have to pay back. And then, too, if we have, we have sinned, we've broken a relationship. We have to restore that relationship. And that requires a certain amount of, of penance. 
In any case, there's a great deal of chiseling to be done here in order to bring out a character. Self-sacrifice and the crushing of egotism and so forth. Now these are the, the principal differences between a psychological analysis, which we repeat is very valid and necessary and useful. But inasmuch as we are here concerned with normal people and the development of character, we are pleading for the superiority of the knowledge of self. Now let us ask three questions about it. First of all, how is self-reflection possible? How can we know ourselves? Secondly, why is it necessary? Thirdly, how do it? See, the great advantage of giving you a plan is you know when I'm going to finish. At 26 minutes and 30 seconds after the hour. First of all, why is self-reflection possible? We are the only people in the world, the only creatures in the world, that can turn back upon ourselves. If, for example, we take a piece of chalk or a piece of paper, a piece of paper cannot reflect as we do. It cannot bend back upon itself and completely possess itself. Why? Because it's material. But we are able to bend back upon ourselves and see ourselves. Now that's possible because we have souls as well as bodies. So that we are, when we look into ourselves as a kind of mirror, we can be pleased with ourselves, we can be angry with ourselves, we can pat ourselves on the back for having done something good, we can reprimand ourselves for having done something evil. We are, at one and the same time, both a subject and an object. For example, you say, uh, I'm not quite myself today. What's the difference between I and myself? There is a you, there is a yourself. We see ourselves. And this is a great power that we have. This is the real psychology of death. Because you're not getting into neutral territory, you're getting into the very center of personality. All right, we can turn back upon ourselves and we can examine ourselves. We can examine our conscience. But why ought we to do it? First of all, because we do surround ourselves with a good many masks, artifices, deceits. We do not know ourselves as we should. There are three pools into which each and every one of us may look for a reflection. In one pool into which we may look, we see ourselves reflected as we think we are. In the second pool, we see ourselves reflected as we think our neighbors think we are. 
And in the third pool, we see ourselves reflected as we really are, and as God sees us. Now, it takes self-reflection, self-examination to determine what is right, namely the third pool. The self-examination is necessary because we're very much like onions. We've got thousands of coats on the outside of us. And self-examination peels off those coats. When you peel an onion, you cry. And believe me, you cry sometimes when you peel off some of these coats of self-deceit and hypocrisy. Not at all easy. Self-examination is necessary because we're icebergs. Did you ever advert to the fact that an iceberg was the ocean's permanent wave? <laughs> oh, no, it's not that good. That's just... All right, we like icebergs. One, one fifth is above the water, and four fifths is submerged under the surface. The one fifth is what we show other people, but the four fifths, which is the substance and essence of our personality, is hidden unless we use self-reflection. I think it was Browning, the poet, who said, God be thanked, the meaning of his meanest of his creatures has two soul sides, one to face the world with, the other to show the woman that he loves. Now, in self-examination, we get below that superficial self, down to the real self. We have to do this because we're very much like a department store in which the wrong price tags are on everything. Well, you went into a department store and uh, Hairpins were marked $299.99, and an Admiral refrigerator, 15 cents. <laughs> you know, there's something wrong with the sense of values. And during life, we do put the wrong price tags on a good many things, and this self-examination finally straightens them out. In each and every one of us, there's the Pharisee and the publican. Pharisee, you remember, that went to the front of the temple and thanked God that he was not like the rest of men. He gave to charity everything he was allowed by the income tax laws. And he was not like those sinners. And then the poor publican in the back of the temple just asked the good Lord for forgiveness. He was not examining a mental state, he was examining his conscience. I remember some years ago, and these things happen frequently enough still today, but just during, during the last war it was, a movie company called me and asked if I would please go to St. Patrick's Cathedral and kneel before the main altar in order that they might take a picture of me praying for peace, peace of the world. And I said to the man who phoned me, did you ever hear the story of the Pharisee and the publican? He said, yes. I said, do you know why our Lord condemned the Pharisee? He said, no. I said, because he went up in the front of the church to pray so Fox Movie Tone News could take a picture of him. LAUGHTER
as much then as there's a double side to us, it's very important to spend a little while after prayer and examining ourselves. But how do we do it? Well, we're concerned, first of all, with motives, choices. We examine ourselves, for example. Am I proud? Egotistic? Do I believe myself better than other people? Do I lord it over other people? Am I jealous? Am I envious? Do I try to do harm to somebody? Who might think is a rival of mine? Am I covetous, avaricious? Did I refuse any poor person today who asked for help? Am I lustful? Am I jealous? Am I lazy? Have I got a sense of responsibility? For example, tonight I could I go back and examine my conscience. I could say to myself, now, why did I give this telecast? Did I give it in order that people would say that was a good telecast? If I say to myself, well, that, I'm pretty good. Tomorrow morning I might wake up and find the good Lord had taken away all the gifts. Hence we have to examine motives, choices, and decisions. Now we do not examine on a psychological level, and that's rather important. The reason we do not examine on a psychological level is because there's no standard. For example, we are told, well, integrate yourself. Well, how can you integrate yourself? Can't lift yourself by your own bootstraps? A broken pot cannot mend itself? Or they say, well, integrate with yourself in society. With society? There are millions of people in society that are maladjusted. I would go crazy adjusting myself to society. <laughs> what do we need? We need a person. That's what we need. How often, for example, when face to face with a child, you see the child's innocence, you immediately begin thinking of what has been lost and how you would like to have it back. You meet a person that is conspicuous for sacrifice and you immediately begin to see your own selfishness. That person is almost seated in judgment without saying a word. So the perfect example that we're looking for, therefore, is our blessed Lord. Perfect life, perfect truth, and perfect love. And in that light, oh, then we see ourselves as we really are. When we examine ourselves by our neighbor, well, we're pretty good. But under that glaring light of the perfect model, the Son of God, well, then we see imperfection just as we do when we take a picture, for example, out of candlelight and bring it under the glare of the sunlight. And yet we never despair. And the reason we never despair is because he who is the light by which we truly know ourselves and the standard by which we judge ourselves is also our physician. He's the one that heals these wounds. And if I have a wound and a physician comes to the door, I do not concentrate upon the wound. Rather, I concentrate upon the curative powers of the physician. And with this model, the divine model before eyes, then one realizes that five minutes a day spent on one's knee examining oneself is worth more than 300 hours on a couch. And it's cheaper, too. <laughs> you know, there's an illusion of law there should never be a war. 
That's false. There must be war. Now, there are two kinds of war. There's a war that is waged outside against enemies, and there's a war that is waged inside against self. And I believe that he who does not have an enemy within will have an enemy without. Have you ever noticed that people that never examine themselves are always critical of others? One of the reasons why this is a century of wars, and strifes and discords, is simply because there are so few that are carrying and waging a war against the enemy within, against sin and against selfishness, and against jealousy and against hate. So we multiply wars on the outside. Our blessed Lord said, I have come not to bring peace, but the sword. Not to bring that false peace, but a true peace. To bring the sword, and not the sword that cuts outward, as did Peter's sword when he cut off the ear of a servant. But rather the sword that plunges into one's own heart to cut out everything that's vile there. That's the kind of sword that he bought. But God hates war in those, hates peace in those who are destined for war. And we're all destined for that inner war. No man in the world is at peace unless he is at war with himself and his vices. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic family videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, one 866 357 4336 and on the web www.bishopsheen.com and on behalf of Bishop Sheen God love you You are listening to Radio Maria Canada We now continue with the program Your Life is Worth Living hosted by Al Smith Peace be to you Thus far in these lessons, we have stressed the idea that the Church is the mystical body of Christ, that it is visible inasmuch as it has members that walk this earth, it is invisible inasmuch as Christ is the invisible head, and the life of it 
is the Holy Spirit. We also said that this church is a society, an assembly, a kahal related in some way to the assembly and kahal of the Old Testament. And through this church, God is diffusing the merits of Calvary. Now we come to a point where we wish to show that Peter holds the primacy. Primacy not only of honor, but also of jurisdiction over the church. In other words, he is the vicar of Christ, he is the first pontiff, he is the first pope. It is very strange that those who admit it with scripture that the church is the mystical body of Christ who will not also admit a head. After all, how are we to know, for example, that the body exists in this earth? It's very easy to know uh, that Christ was walking in this earth simply because men saw him. Well, after his ascension, how would men know his mystical body and where his life was to be found? Our blessed Lord did not leave these questions unanswered. And so he gave a sign that we would know his body, and the sign was the sign of all living things. How does any life manifest itself? Does not the unity of life manifest itself through the head, which is the source of the movements of the body? The head is the symbol, is it not, of the unity of life. Legs and arms can be amputated without destroying the unity of life. But cut off the head, and it's the end of life. In the social order, does not every club or group or society or nation have a head, or a president, or a king? And even in the psychological order, it is natural almost that there be a kind of a consciousness of headship. In an infant, for example, there's a great complexity and crisscrossing of activities, vegetative, emotional, and mechanical, and vital, and so forth. But as the child develops, gradually it reaches a point where it sums up all of its organic activities in the personal pronoun, I. It comes to a consciousness of its unity, the center of reference, namely the primacy of personality. Now, if our blessed Lord established a life here on earth, even though he didn't name a head, it would eventually, in the psychological order, have to become conscious of its head. But our blessed Lord, as we know, and as we were going to show, did name a head. Now, this happened, as we saw in the last lesson, at Caesarea Philippi. It was a half-pagan city. And in that city, our blessed Lord considered the three possible forms of church government. 
how would his mystical body be governed? There might be three ways. One, democratic. Two, the aristocratic. And three, the theocratic. The democratic would be one in which a majority vote decides, in which everyone has an entirely different opinion of what is to be, to be the truth and to be the law. The aristocratic is an appeal not so much to the majority or to the masses, but rather an appeal to an aristoi, an aristocracy, the House of Parliament, the Senate, the Congress, the House of Lords, whatever it be. And the theocratic is one in which God chooses one man as he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and guides and protects and directs this man. Our blessed Lord did not establish his church without considering all of these possible forms of government. So he began with the democratic. And his question was, who do men say the Son of Man is? Notice men. In other words, if you took a poll, if you took a vote, what is the general opinion concerning me? What answer did our Lord get? The answer was, some say you're John the Baptist, another's Elias, another Jeremiah, another's one of the prophets. No unity, no certitude. Leave the government of the church to individual interpretation and you get contrary and contradictory views. Eternal truth who said that not a single iota of his teaching should be changed could ever accept a government of that kind in which men could not agree and so he had for it nothing but the withering scorn of his silence. Next, he appeals to the aristocratic. Whom do you say that I am? You, my twelve apostles, you, my aristocracy, you, my chosen group, who am I? There was no answer. First of all, there had been no head appointed as their spokesman. Furthermore, some of them had doubt. Thomas certainly had doubt. Judas was not very certain of his financial sagacity. Philip was troubled about relations to the Heavenly Father. So our blessed Lord could not build his church upon an aristocracy alone. At this point, there's one man, without the consent of the others, who steps forward. And he speaks in the name of all. And he gives the right answer. His answer is, Thou art the Christ. 
the Son of the living God. Here is one man with divine illumination, as we shall see, who speaks in the name of all, who makes the confession of the divinity of Christ, who affirms faith in him, who is to be chosen as the head of his mystical body. This is the theocratic form of church government. Before we go into the text, what objections could there be? Well, one objection that is urged against this particular text is that our blessed Lord did not build his church on Peter. He built it upon Peter's confession of faith in his divinity. Now, this is not true because our blessed Lord was addressing Peter in the second person singular. As we shall see, our Lord said to Peter, Blessed art thou, I will give to thee whatsoever thou shalt bind. Here there's no confession of faith. Our blessed Lord is speaking in the second person singular to a man whose name he changed from Simon to Rock. Coming back now to our text. Let us go through briefly some of the words. Our blessed Lord said to Simon Peter, Blessed art thou. We have heard those words before. They were once spoken by an archangel at the Annunciation to Mary. When the archangel approached Mary to ask her if she would give God a human nature with which he could redeem the world, the angel saluted her, Blessed art thou. Why blessed? Because she was to be given the divine privilege of motherhood of Christ. Now like unto the Annunciation, our blessed Lord says to Simon Peter, Blessed art thou, as Mary was blessed because she was to be the mother of Christ, the head of the mystical body, so Peter is blessed because he's to be the vicar of Christ and the visible head of the mystical body. Next, our blessed Lord said, Simon bar Jonah, blessed art thou, Simon, son of John. Our Lord is still calling him by his personal name, that is to say his family name. Our Lord had already given him another name, the name of Kephas in Aramaic, which means rock, and the name of Peter in English. Then our blessed Lord continued. Apropos of the confession of divinity, our blessed Lord said to Peter, Flesh and blood hath not revealed this to thee. In other words, you do not know that I am Christ the Son of God, by natural instinct or by reason. 
just as you who are listening to me, do not know just by reason alone that Christ is the Son of God. Your reason gives you motives of credibility. But there had to be an illumination from above. Here there's a very special illumination of Peter because he recognizes now that Christ is not only the Messiah, but he's also the Son of the Eternal Father. Remember that all of the apostles were there at Caesarea Philippi. And yet our blessed Lord speaks only to one. And our Lord continues, And in my turn, I say to thee, to Peter, Note, this is going to be personal. Thou art the rock. Notice the parallel between Peter's confession and our blessed Lord's transfer of power. Peter said, Thou art the Christ. Our Lord answers, Thou art the rock. Peter confessed the grandeur of Christ. Christ confesses the grandeur of Peter. Remember now that Peter's name is Rock. It was a new name. It was suited to his office. Now this word Rock does not appear here for the first time in Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, God is called Rock. As we are going to see later on, that God is also called Key bearer, God is also called shepherd. Our blessed Lord, inasmuch as he is the son of God, is the rock of the ages. Yet he makes Peter a rock. Look through the Old Testament and you will find instances of how God is called the rock. Remember that in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers, there was a rock that gave forth water. And St. Paul later on referring to that says, and the rock that followed them was Christ. In other words, that rock that Moses struck was a prefigurement of Christ, was the eternal rock. There are 40 references in the Old Testament where God is called a rock. In the book of Daniel, the Messiah is called the rock smashes to dust the statue with the feet of clay. And our blessed Lord himself said that those who obeyed his commandments would be likened to a house that was built upon a rock. Now the implication was that here Christ the Son of God, who in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, is called the Rock of Israel, that this Christ, as the Son of God, sustained the old Kahal, so Peter is to sustain the new Kahal, the new Ecclesia, or the new church as a rock. In other words, there is a communication of the divine power of being a rock from God to Peter. 
When our blessed Lord told Peter that he was to be the rock, that did not mean that God had had his rights violated or that he had abdicated them. He is the rock. But he's the invisible rock. And Peter is to be made the visible rock of the mystical body. If a technical reference may be permitted, in the Greek of uh, Matthew, where we have the words, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Uh, the word for Peter is Petros, and the word for rock is Petra. Now, in classical literature, for example, in Homer, you find that the word uh, uh, Petros means a kind of a small rock that is part of a great and tremendous rock like Gibraltar. So our blessed Lord is really saying to Peter, Thou art the true Petros of me, the divine Petra. And both are persons. Christ the rock was a person. Peter the rock was a person. So that as a visible body, the church had Peter as its visible rock foundation. As an invisible, invisible spiritual reality, the mystical body has Christ in heaven as its spiritual eternal rock. Next, our blessed Lord said, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my kahal. Our Lord did not say, I will build my churches. The church is his body. Christ cannot have many bodies. That would be a physical monstrosity. So that the whole organic foundation of the mystical body is founded on a single man who is to have divine assistance. Notice our Lord also said, I will build my church. This same word build is used in the book of Genesis. In the Latin translation of the scriptures and the Vulgate, it is exactly the same word that is used to describe how Eve was formed out of Adam and how Christ built his church. Adam was like an unfinished thing until Eve was formed. So scripture says that Christ was to have his fullness in his bride, the church. As Eve was built from Adam, so the church was built from Christ. Next, our blessed Lord says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, against the church. Now here our Lord is not so much referring to literal gates, but rather to an unseen world. The word prevail, that is to say evil shall not prevail, means to overpower. Our blessed Lord therefore assures Peter that his church will be indestructible, indefectible, because the gates symbolized power. It was the place generally where counselors and men of power and government met. For example, the book of Genesis says that Lot sat at the gate of Sodom. 
The book of Ruth says that Boaz took care of legal matters at the gate of Bethlehem. So too, hell has its gates, its seat, its council, its treasury of power. Now this will always be opposed to the church, but our blessed Lord says the gates of hell shall not prevail. In other words, the church will be indefectible through the ages. And notice, too, that this privilege is not given to the person of Simon, but is given to Peter. Our blessed Lord said that he will be with his church even under the consummation of the world. Then our Lord added, I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Imagine. Not only is he the foundation stone, but once he's on the inside of this church, he's going to have keys. Our blessed Lord said, I am the door. And in the book of the Apocalypse, the glorified Christ is described as bearing keys. And the book of the Apocalypse states, so that none may shut what he opens, and none may open when he shuts. But just as the eternal rock made a visible rock, as the good shepherd is going to make Peter the shepherd, so the key bearer, the eternal key bearer, gives him the keys. In other words, he truly is the vicar of Christ. Give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and then whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth is loosed in heaven. This means that whatever Peter commands or forbids, he does it in the name of Christ. What a tremendous power! Earth and heaven become a single force, where the heavens almost seem to be an echo of earth, as if God were lending his ears in order to hear what his vicar Peter was saying. And his power is legislative because he can bind and loose. It's a power of discipline. It's a power that will protect him from error. And there's no limit to it, for our blessed Lord said, Whatsoever he binds, Christ binds. Here our blessed Lord promised to confer this power upon Peter, but there were other instances too in Scripture where our Lord associated Peter with himself. One particularly interesting moment is the night of the Last Supper. All of the apostles were gathered together with our blessed Lord. And our Lord speaks to Peter and said, Behold, Satan has claimed power over all of you, so that he may sift you as wheat. Now notice the plural there. Our Lord is saying power over all of you. The words of our Lord continue. But I prayed for thee, that thy faith may not fail. When after a while thou hast come back to me, it is for thee to be the support of thy brethren. Notice our blessed Lord says, Satan wants all of them. 
Now, out of all, for whom does our Lord pray? Here he's not praying for the twelve. He's praying for Peter alone. He addresses him in the second person singular. And he does that because if the foundation stone crumbled, the rest of the edifice would fail. Our blessed Lord is also telling Peter that he's going to fail, as he will a few hours later when he will tell the maid servants, I know not the man. But our Lord says that he will come back. He will come back at Pentecost, and then he will be the support of the twelve. In other words, it is in Peter, the vicar of Christ, that the apostles or the bishops have their support and come within the hearing of the prayer of Christ. Isolated and separated from Peter as the vicar of Christ, the apostles are weak. And we're not to assume that this power was given only to Peter because he was not called Simon then. Simon indeed dies, but Peter lives on. Pius and Leo and Benedict and others die, but Peter continues under the consummation of the world. Another instance of how our Lord associated Peter to himself was that the payment of the temple tax is the only time in Scripture where God ever associates the human being with himself under the personal pronoun we. Just think how proud you were when as a child perhaps your father put his arms around you and said, we will do this. Now at the time of the payment of the temple tax, our blessed Lord told Peter to pay it, and he said to pay it for me and for thee. And then he adds that we may not scamper. Here he is making himself one with Peter. He's associated with the master in a way that no one else can ever be associated. We, Christ and Peter. That is why all papal encyclicals begin with the word we. Now, this particular unity that existed between Petros and Petra, the invisible rock and the visible rock, is now carried on at the close of our Lord's public life, rather after the resurrection. Our Lord is fishing three times. He says to Peter when he comes to the shore, Lovest thou me? And after Peter affirms his love, because there can be no conferring of authority without love. Our blessed Lord each time says to him, Feed my lambs, tend my shearlings, feed my sheep. Here the power is conferred by the good shepherd to Peter the shepherd. The flock is one because the shepherd is one. And one man is at the head of the flock. In other words, the church is to be made up of bishops and priests and people. As on earth, our blessed Lord associated with himself apostles, disciples, and people. And Peter is to be the head of them all. And the words that our blessed Lord used in Greek were boskine, poimenine. In other words, you have the order, you have the jurisdiction, you have the authority. 
in order to, to feed my lambs, to feed my sheep, I am transferring my power as shepherd to you. And our Lord told Peter how he would die, that he would be crucified. And Peter went to Rome, where he was crucified. He said that he was not worthy to be crucified in the manner that our blessed Lord was. So he asked that he be crucified upside down. How fitting that was. For the eternal rock had told him that he was to be the rock. And after all, where is the foundation rock to be placed if not close to the ground? And so the rock was laid. And that rock became the foundation stone of the church. And from that day to this, the church has a shepherd. A rock, a key bearer, a pontiff, a bridge builder between earth and heaven, a vicar of Christ, a pope, a holy father, the one head for the one body. how we know where the church is. As they said in the first century, Ubi Petrus, Ibi Ecclesia. Wherever Peter is, there is the church. God bless. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.